We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Coachable family, welcome back to the Coachable Podcast. I'm your host, Tori Gordon, and today is an incredibly special day in the studio. We've got none other than Drew Robinson here, and I am excited to tell you a little bit about him. If you don't know his story already, you are going to be highly inspired, motivated, and more appreciative more appreciative of your life than ever before. I can guarantee that because um, I knew just a little bit about this guy when I heard about his name and when I was introduced to him for the first time, what was told to me is that you need to know him because not only is he making a massive impact and influence in the world of mental health and advocacy, um, but he's truly an inspiration and a reminder of how much a gift it is to be alive. And so for those who don't know, Drew is an incredible athlete, grew up actually right here in Las Vegas, Las Vegas native, and um, was drafted in 2010 in the fourth round of the MLB draft. He is an incredible top level, top tier athlete. So when you're turning into the Coachable Podcast and we talk about the game of life, this guy knows a little bit about what it means to be successful and also what it means to be caught up in the rat race of trying to compare yourself to other people, to try and be perfect, and to try and fit into a mold that you think you need to be in order to be liked or be enough or be the best. And so if you've ever in your life experienced that, where you're like, maybe on the outside life looks really good, but it doesn't feel good on the inside. We're going to hear Drew's story today and let him tell it from his perspective. Um, What led to him actually trying to commit suicide? And then after 20 hours of um, actually finding himself still alive, why he chose life and chose to actually call um, 911 himself. And here he is today to tell him story. So welcome. Drew Robinson, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited for this. So appreciate the intro. Appreciate getting ready to talk some some realness. Yeah. 
We're also joined by Ellie, his amazing <laughs> service dog, who is the most cute thing. You can't see her on camera. She is um, so cute. So I might be looking down a little bit. Um, but yeah, just to give people an idea, um, I like I, you and I were talking off camera before we just started. You've recently come into my life, but I've heard your name. I knew just a tiny little bit about your story. And um, and what I said earlier, I'm just, first of all, really grateful that you're here. Grateful that our worlds have collided at this time. Um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to learn from you about the way in which we can encounter and go through some of the darkest most intense times of our lives and how do we hold on to hope and how do we crawl our way out of that? Cause I certainly have my own experience with that too. So if you could take us back to growing up here in Las Vegas, I mean, I know you've got a couple other siblings. Tell me about childhood and what that was like for you and how you ended up finding love of baseball. Yeah. Um, really it was just a pretty standard childhood, just, little uh, mischievous kid, the youngest of two other siblings, um, an older brother who was very gifted um, physically to play sports. So just kind of being attached at his hip and just following in his footsteps any chance I could and just nonstop being outside playing some kind of sport with, with either him and his friends or my neighborhood friends. And um, having an older sister that was, that was there too. And then um, growing up in a household where we all really loved each other and cared about each other, but it just wasn't the right fit. So there was a lot of, it was a tension filled household because my parents were just trying to hold on to their marriage, even though um, they weren't necessarily right for each other. So growing up in a, a household with that, um, that kind of environment that eventually got split by divorce. Mm. Um, it was a little bit of a roller coaster, um, especially as a little, as a young child, I definitely wasn't thinking about these things in this way. It was just coming out in different actions and things like that. But um, yeah, I think my childhood is something that was really shaped by all those, those circumstances, but more importantly, my, my love for just sports, um, which like I said, following my brother's footsteps, he really committed to baseball. Um, he was very gifted. And so I followed his footsteps and, um, we both just fell in love with the sport of baseball. And mm. he was very ahead of his, his class with his age, um, from a physical standpoint and ability standpoint, while I was the exact opposite, I was a very late bloomer and I was a little always a lot smaller than my age group. Um, so it was a little frustrating at times looking yeah. up and seeing that and wishing I could have been experiencing those kind of things. But luckily I hit that growth spurt and was able to take advantage of it um, at the last second before the draft. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. Cause I, I grew up also an athlete. I was a three sport athlete. And so I can very much relate to your kind of upbringing in, in the sense that sports brought us together and like you, I was highly competitive and wanted to be the best and got a lot of attention and recognition and praise and validation when I did well at things. And how formative that is in your early years and how you're conditioned to seek that out when you're like, oh, when I do well at this, people love me. You know, people clap, there's applause, there's, you know, whether for me it was whether it was in sports or in school or anything else. Um, when was it for you that you started to get a taste of that recognition and that success where you're like, 
hmm, this feels good. I want more of this. And did you like, what was that process like of kind of becoming obsessed with something so much that you could get to the point where you're playing at such an elite level drafted in the fourth round? I mean, tell me about like that process of the ways in which you might have formed your own identity around baseball. Yeah, I think, I think I really became aware of it after my junior season, because that's when I kind of, like I said, I had the growth spurt and I was able to put it together and put together a good season, kind of yeah. get become on the map um, in the baseball world and the scouting world. So that was where I've like really started to sense that feeling or that craving. But I think now reflecting back, like it's, when I think about certain memories, even younger than that, it was clear that it was always there. And I was yeah. always subconsciously striving and craving um, some kind of action because I, like I said, I was a very, where my heart, where my heart on my sleeve kind of kid. Mm. Um, so everyone around me knew exactly how I was feeling good or bad. Um, and that came out in even more intense ways in sports, especially when you're not able to do everything you want. So, um, it was always there, but I don't, I think I really recognized it once I started getting some attention after that junior year, when I started getting some phone calls about from, um, college coaches and some attention from scouts, again, seeing my brother go through it the years before I was now it's happened to me where a year before that, it was like, I, I'm never going to experience that. Mm. It was just all this like, wow, if I just keep on doing this, like, this is great. This is something I wish I could have had and now I have it. So let me, um, really do even more or yeah. whatever. Let me just pay attention to this. And, um, I think that's what, after that junior year is really when I started recognizing like, okay, I have an opportunity and this is great. I'm, it's leading me to do good things. Like I'm not doing anything detrimental, but um, there was definitely this subconscious craving of like attention and praise as well as striving for greatness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you get drafted at 18, like right out of high school. Right. So when I think about me, me at 18, I'm like, Oh my God, I thought I knew, I thought I was hot shit. I thought I knew a lot about life. And I, now looking back, I just like, it's so laughable. Um, but I obviously went right into college. You get drafted. What happens on draft day? Like for you, what was that experience like? Yeah. Actual draft day is actually kind of a trip, but, um, same. I think I, I feel like I find myself talking about 18 year old me when I'm working with any of the guys about how this just makes my skin crawl. When I think about the things I thought was cool, mm-hmm. things I thought was important, whatever. So mm-hmm. I feel you on that. But, um, yeah, draft day was actually kind of funny because, Baseball does it in three separate days or back then they did it in three separate days. The first day is the televised, the, the, what you see on TV and every other sport. And then it goes at that time, the second day was just kind of over the, the computer, really the radio wasn't mm-hmm. as fully production. Um, and since I wasn't a first or second round, which is the first day, um, I was just kind of tuning in on that first day. Cause I had a couple of buddies that were going to be first rounders and I was paying attention. Um, so one of my, two of my high school buddies came over and we were just kind of watching together. One snuck away and prank called me and said that he was so-and-so from the Indians wow. or a team saying I was going to get drafted in the first round. And I totally bought it. And he came out of the bathroom and was like, Hey, did you just get a call from so-and-so <laughs> got, so he got me. Wow. Um, <laughs> so the dra- that draft day was kind of fun. It's a, it's a fun memory that my buddy and I have that we talk about pretty often. Um, and then, yeah, the second day when, which was the day that I was projected to be going in, um, I'm just sitting at 
old school computer, just watching the ticker coming out. Mm -hmm. So-and-so got drafted for this team. I'm just waiting to see my name. And then it would show the next thing that was coming up. So throughout the process of getting scouted, there's a couple of teams that kind of stick out who are, seem to be more interested in whatnot. So um, when the teams are popping up that, or were on the, on, on deck um, that were seemed to be interested, I was really paying attention, but the Rangers weren't showing that much interest openly to me. They scouted me, but it was, didn't seem like they were on the, the real radar of mm -hmm. potentially taking me. So when the Rangers popped up, I didn't even, I got it from the computer. I wasn't even watching it intently. And I, was, I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but my buddy was like, hey, the Rangers just took you. I was like, what? Really? Mm -hmm. He's like, no, seriously. I was like, are you messing with me like you did yesterday? And so then we had this like really cool moment. Like, again, like it just 18 year olds, like, oh my gosh, yeah. like, I can't believe it. This is, this is everything I wanted. This is for the next step. So it was obviously a very uh, high moment of my life of, um, feeling excited, gratitude, and just a very high adrenaline rush. Yeah. So you played 12 seasons, right? In total. How many in the major leagues? Um, I was up and down for parts of three of those. Okay. So the day that you get called up to the majors, take me through that day. Yeah. Again, also kind of, uh, a little bit out of the ordinary in the baseball world. Mm -hmm. So I played seven full seasons in the minor leagues with a couple like just honestly, just like my emotions, like I said earlier, being a roller coaster all yeah. over the place. That's kind of how my career played out as well. So the first seven years of um, only minor leagues, there were some seasons where I was showing the ability and the other seasons I was the worst statistical player in the league. So hmm. very polarizing at times and a bit inconsistent. Um, so going into my eighth season, at that time I was, I was invited to big league camp, but I was definitely not on like the radar baseball there's a, lot, a big group invited big league camp um but a lot of times they just slowly go back to minor league camp throughout um, while guys are building up their workload um i had been put on the major league roster beforehand but also very big compared to the expanded roster versus the active roster it's a little complex in baseball and a little confusing at times but um i just i wasn't penciled in to be making this team so i was kind of aware of that i feel like most people were aware of that but i played well enough to be sticking around a little bit longer in the spring training. And then usually about a week before spring training ends, everyone is pretty much told where they're going to go. There's mm -hmm. always a couple of people that are a little bit on the fence, but for the most part, everyone knows. And that going into the last two, three games, everyone had been told like very strictly, you're going to this team and I haven't been told anything. So we played the last game. We're literally get done with the last game. So everyone is showering, getting ready to drive off to their minor league team or stay and go home and say, get ready for the next day of mm -hmm. opening, opening day. I'm still not told where I'm going. So I'm just sitting in my locker, like the spring training is officially over. And like, I don't know exactly where I'm going. So I'm sitting around like on, on pins and needles, excited, nervous, whatever, just kind mm -hmm. of confused at the same time. Um, but then they finally called me in and said that I'm going to be staying with the team instead of being starting the season minor league. So I got to actually experience just staying on the team from spring training, which I thought was really cool because opening day in baseball is just yeah. uh, a beautiful event. And it's uh, something that is very exciting and anticipatory. So being able to experience that while also being my first taste of actual big leagues was mm -hmm. something that was just awesome. And um, is also kind of funny because when my manager told me, when we were sitting in the office, he said, you're going to be staying with the team. Um, I, guess I didn't show an immediate enough reaction, okay. even though inside I was about to burst. He's like, did you hear what I said? You're staying with us. I was like, yeah, no, I know. Like, I hear you. So um, again, it's just a very special moment uh, being, being able to be told that 
feel that go out and text all my friends and family that I did it mm-hmm. um, again, because two years prior, three years prior, there was a very good chance that I wouldn't have been invited back the next year to make a comeback. Wow. So um, it was just a very gratifying feeling. And then uh, the roller, the ups and downs process started after that, which is a bit of a challenge, but it was something that again, I find myself thinking about very often these days. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who um, have played professionally in one sport or another. And I've watched over their careers, the, the emotional roller coaster that they've been on with the call-ups and being sent down and the anticipation and the anxiety and uh, fighting for your spot and, and how much also at the end of their careers, there's a wrestling with identity of who am I without the sport and who I am I now and what does my life look like? Um, so I have a, a little bit of kind of insight into what that's like just from the friends and the people that I know that have experienced it. But I want to like go, you just take us like behind the scenes and like behind closed doors because you have this mountaintop experience being drafted. You have another mountaintop experience of being, you know, kept on the start, you know, opening day roster for the Texas Rangers. What's going on in your internal world at this time? Because from the outsider's point of view, you're living the dream, right? And you have it all. For a lot of people, they might, you know, they're probably looking at you and thinking, I aspire to be like Drew Robinson. I'm the little kid that's looking up to you and wants to be you when I grow up. What was the reality happening internally at that time? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because obviously it's very complex, but it's something that was just very quickly shifted no matter what mm-hmm. or, or depending on what the environment was. So when I got told I was genuinely over the moon but I wouldn't be surprised. I don't remember specifically, but I wouldn't be surprised if on the drive home, there was like this other voice in my head, like you're still fooling everybody. Mm. So, um, not to taint any, any moment that I was experiencing, but there was just always this like clinging to experiences after they had ended because I don't want to go deal with the reality of my self-hatred afterwards. So there was Mm. a a bit of that at any given moment, but I don't like, well, I try not to share it exactly that way just because I also don't want to take away this, how special it was to experience those highs. Because like I said, I, I looking back, I'm not proud of how much I kind of shifted back and forth so drastically between emotions and how quickly I was able to do that. Um, because the reality is my memories of baseball was so fun Mm. and I'm well aware that I got to experience something that my 10 year old self would have dreamed of. So, um, there's plenty of parts that didn't go exactly how I was wanting. And that frustrated me to a point where I was completely overwhelmed. Um, but there was just so many good moments and so many good connections and so many good parts of my life that was included in that. Um, but unfortunately there was a part of me that behind the scenes was always nagging at me of saying, you're not still not good enough. You're still fooling everybody. And this just desperate clinging to something external because Mm -hmm. I didn't have the tools and I, this is definitely a reflection too. In the moment, if someone would have asked me to explain that, um, I would have not even been able to come close to experience or to explaining that that way. So, um, looking back, I just realized there was always a lingering kind of anxiousness to mm-hmm. any given moment. 
Yeah, it's like when I hear you say that, I I think about it's just like this dissonance, right? This disconnection from the reality and the results and the the light and the all the things that are kind of happening on one side of this pendulum and then how to and swinging that pendulum to the complete other side um, that also tells you that it's never enough or that you need to be doing something better. Or even though you just hit, you know, hit a home run or you just, you know, made the starting day roster, it could always be taken from you. Um, yeah, they, they, my internal world was just always dependent on external factors, which right. as I've learned is just such a dangerous game because you can't control a lot of the external factors. So I think that's a better way to word that clinging to any right. kind of interaction or environment. It was really just everything inside of me was just completely dependent on things I couldn't control, which became maddening at times, exhausting, exciting, gratifying, like all the good things and right. all the bad things, but it was very fleeting and very, again, back and forth, yeah. um, which, because I have no control of those external sure, things. Sure, and it's exhausting. And honestly, what I've had, there's so many times in my life, still, at I catch myself attaching to something external. Nikki and I were recently having this conversation. Um, and there's actually a mental performance coach. They call him the mind architect. His name is Peter Crone. Um, he is the one that helped me to come to this awareness that when we attach our okayness, our peace, our joy, our happiness on something external, we're always at risk of losing that. And so whether it's in the amount of money that you have, the title, the car you drive, the girl you date, where you're batting in the lineup, you know what (laughs) I mean? What happens if that goes away? Well, so does your peace and so does your joy. And the thing is like, none of us are taught this, right? (laughs) Like I didn't grow up in a household that taught me how to source peace and happiness from within myself. I like you attached that to an out at a external result or outcome. And as long as life was happening the way I wanted it to, I was good. But the moment that it stopped, everything came crashing down. I'm curious because I know people who are listening and watching this can relate to what you just said about feeling like you're just being whipped around by your emotions and by your thoughts. And I know you have a saying about your mind being, what's the saying around? It's a good your slave, mind, not a good master. Tell me about that. Your mind is your that. servant, not yeah, your master. Right. Tell me about that quote. Yeah, that one just sticks out. It was, I was really fortunate to have a really good support system after my attempt. Um, and one of those, my mentors was, he just kind of, mentioned that in between some of these messages that he was trying to help me with. And I had to like, stop like, Hey, say that again. Like mm-hmm. that seems like I could really use that. So just the concept of not letting your mind control you. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I mean, I still do it to this day, but like I have this voice where it's almost like where I'm saying we can't do this or we can do this, or you're not that person as it's like, as if I'm talking to somebody else. Um, and I think that way to myself sometimes. And it's just an example of how there's like the mind stuff, like all these different parts of us. And I think up until 
I mean, still to this day, to be honest, I was going to say up until my attempt, but I still struggle with the same struggles at times. Um, but trying to be more in control of the things I control is just more the internal world so that right. my mind be my servant, letting it fuel me into my decisions and, and fuel these, this growth that I'm trying to tap into instead of it being like, let's wake up and just see what happens today. And as soon as the first inconvenience happens, let's just go off the rails and be mad at mm -hmm. everybody, be hate myself, mm -hmm. play victim. Um, so it's just the concept of being a little bit more in control of the things that you can control and not letting um, what sometimes feels like a monster of a mind control me. Yeah. I think what you're talking to is this level of awareness and consciousness that I would assert a lot of people that listen to the show have because they wouldn't be listening to the show <laughs> unless they were on some level self-aware <laughs> and seeking, you know, to become more, um, you know, self-aware and, and improve their lives and, and take control of the things that they can control. But when you're talking about that, what I hear is what I call this, this way of like how we are culturally and societally conditioned into playing one position on the field. When I talk about the game of life, I talk about most people are playing defense. They're playing not to lose. Mm. That is a survival-based instinct. It's how do I protect myself and how do I prevent defense prevents bad things from happening. The yeah. other team scoring, right? That's what they're there for. Defense doesn't score points. Right. Defense doesn't move the ball down the field. Defense is reactive. And when I hear you describe kind of that mental game or that you're playing with yourself that you didn't even know you were, you had this opponent, which was your, this voice inside your head. And we think our opponent is like the government or our ex who broke our heart or like our parents who weren't, you know, neglected our emotional needs or whoever we're victim to and whoever we can blame in our lives for why we are the way we are versus thinking about it as there's an opponent in my mind that is like all of my limiting beliefs and all of the stories that I have that tell me I'm not good enough and I'm not lovable and I'm it's my fault and I'm broken. And that leads me to think everybody's judging me <laughs> as badly as I'm judging myself. And that's who we're at war with. And we go to battle with, and we go up against every single day. And what I realized in my own personal life was like, I wasn't actually engaging in the game of life. I was just like at war with myself you all know, the time. I feel like that's, a more elegant way of why of how I was trying to describe the clinging to yeah. an identity, clinging to a reputation, a a belief, a an outcome, something, some kind of thing that's either uncontrollable or so temporary that it's not going to fix anything. Mm -hmm. So um, I agree. I think that's something that all these, uh, at least in my experience, a lot of the things that I'm struggling with are actually just a very deep level, a deep rooted projection of something. Right. So when I find I'm a very, um, I don't know, I'm a very loving person, but, um, I do struggle with judgment and it's something that I 
I very quickly almost beat myself up with afterwards. Sure. And it's like, why do you still have to judge this? Or mm-hmm. why do you care about that? Or why is, why is this crossing your mind? It's really just a projection of, and it's because, because it's very obvious they're stronger when I have personally slacked off of my routine or slacked right. off of my things, they become louder, they become more often or, or whatever, more frequent. So I've learned that all of my shadow parts of me, the things I'm not the most proud of, pop up in ways of projection. Mm-hmm. And it's not because of any valid reason externally. Mm-hmm. It's not, like you said, the examples of outside circumstances actually being the reason for these things. For me, it's usually a projection of some kind of like very deep rooted insecurity that I haven't yeah. um, been willing to address or haven't figured out yet or whatever the case may be. I think that's something that's so common and something that I, again, I struggle with at times. And I think that's a similar way of how I was just trying to say, I was, I'm just, I really have at times just trying to cling on to anything that will do the work for me when really it's, not yeah. gonna be, it's not going to happen it's that way. It's you against you, right. you know, and most people, a lot of people spend their entire lives thinking it's us versus them. It's like, how can I climb the ladder and get more and achieve more and be so that I can be more? So how can I do more and have more so that then I can be more? Oh. And in, right. It's like this do mentality first do what do I need to do so that I can be somebody right and what helped me to shift that I was like I realized I was doing it backwards right I was like no who do I need to be first right and from that place I will do and take certain actions and then I'll have a certain result versus what do I need to do and what can I have so that I can validate who I am and be enough I think of a quote, I forget exactly who said it, but it's very simple and it's a little bit cliche, a lot of bit cliche, but it's something just we're human cliches beings. Cliches are cliches for a reason. Human beings, <laughs> not human doings. Right. Um, that, that comes to mind. And um, I also think about like the work, work, you, the work works on you more than you work on it. Mm. Those kind of mm-hmm. concepts when we're talking about things like this, because it's always just so true. It's anytime you really try to control the work or try to do something to become, yeah. a, to be something it almost never works out that way. Um, yeah. It's about who you become in the process. All those, all those aspects that come into play here. Yeah, it's uh, always never-ending reminding, reminding game that that's the way it works, <laughs> and not the way it works when you try to control it that way. Right, and so it seems like, and I want you to take us through, like your internal world when you're contemplating actually going through with this attempt and what that day was like for you, and then what it was like to wake up and realize you were still here. I want you to tell me that story because it, it seems like you didn't cross over into the, let me do the work. And this idea that like, I can take responsibility and I have control over the things that I'm in control of. And until you woke up on the other side of this attempt and you're still here, right? And you're like, okay, now, now let's do things differently. But it took you to coming to that point to have that shift in perspective. Yeah. If you're, if you're open to it, please share with me, like how long were you contemplating this and what did it, what were like the things that led up to that, that day of actually deciding to go through with it. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to share too, that I, I was aware that I was not in a place that I wanted to be 
well before this happened. Um, there's definitely times where I spent quick little spurts of like, man, I, I need help. Um, but not being able to articulate it that way into action. So, um, a couple of years prior, I, I did just finally share that something feels off. I went and got tested in a physical, like a, a a check-in with a doctor because as a male and in sports, like all you think about is like physical attributes. Mm -hmm. So I was so tired and, and so not feeling myself that I was like, there must be something wrong chemically or something wrong with my, with my body, some Mm -hmm. kind of organ, something. Right. Um, and so when I went and got tested and everything was normal, I finally asked our, our, um, one of our medical personnel that I've heard of these things, antidepressants. I've heard of like those, I'm not crazy, you know, like of course, old school, un, un, uneducated, <laughs> like I'm not like the hesitancy part of saying like, no, hell yeah, I need help. Like yeah. life is hard. Um, it was, I did kind of tiptoe into that or dip my toe in the water. And then even before uh, my attempt, I, I was actually seeing a therapist and that's a part of the story that I'm, I really feel is important because I knew I recognized that I was getting to a very dangerous place and these thoughts were really starting to build up. And so I, I attempted to get the help and I was looking for help, but I was still unwilling to ask for help, even though I was in the setting that was, that I was paying for Mm. to help me. So I was seeing a therapist beforehand, but I still was so paralyzed by this fear of judgment and being misunderstood of even somebody who is, I'm trying to get help from, but I'm still unwilling to ask for help. Um, so the months beforehand, um, I was going to therapy once or twice a month or uh, once or twice a week wow. and going in there and just saying, yeah, I'm just trying to improve my quality of life. Like I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Like I definitely recognize there's some things I can improve in, but, um, overall I'm okay. Do you when feel really like I was leaving and saying, okay, that was really helpful what we talked about, but I also am not being completely honest. And then I would, it would just kind of double down on myself, yeah. self, my negative self-talk of like, dude, what are you doing? So you knew you were aware that there were things you were holding back. Yeah. But up at that point I had gotten, I had found out that someone, that someone close to me that I wouldn't have thought would have the strength to go into therapy was going. And that was an influence on me. Like, wow. Okay. Like yeah. maybe I can do this. Like I'm not exactly where I want to be. Like baseball is getting to a point where I'm really scared. It's going to come to an end sooner than I want. Um, some things have happened and so let me just try it. And then, like I said, I would go in and I wasn't fully into a suicidal ideation phase yet, but I was really struggling with perspectives Mm -hmm. and and negativity and self-talk and self-relationship. And, um, I just wasn't willing to actually share it. I was like, yeah, I'm confident. Look, I'm like, look how confident I am that I'm willing to just do more work when really it's, I was crumbling inside or not crumbling yet, but I was really hating myself these actions that I had done in my life and regrets and whatnot. So like I said, I, I was looking for help and I knew I needed help, but I was completely unwilling to ask for help. And so that's when I got into, um, the fall of 2019, which was a couple of months after having my first season ending surgery and injury, which I was very fortunate in my career to stay pretty healthy throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to play basically from 18 up until at that point, I would think I was 20, seven, um, almost whenever I wanted, there was a couple of small injuries here and there, obviously, but it was the first time where I was told I could not play, had surgery and was sent home. So I was doing my recovery at my house. So I'm sitting watching baseball happen in my living room couch when all I had known for the last 10 years was being out in the field with all my friends that I'm watching on TV. It really 
made me uncomfortable and it made me really start to question my baseball career. Cause at that time I was also felt like I was a little bit running out of opportunities to make that adjustment that mm-hmm. I was sh- showing I needed to make. So that discomfort again, transformed into some other pr- projection because I was not doing the work. I wasn't aware of a, the actual feeling, just knowing I was frustrated that yeah. things were going the way they were going. So unfortunately I turned into a projection on the things that were closest around me because I'm very influenced by my surroundings and, and my environment. Unfortunately, um, I really started becoming passive aggressive and the negativity really started to come out in ways that I just weren't warranted towards my friend, my mainly my fiance at the time. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was just so confusing because it's like, for some reason, this feels so true to me to be saying these hurtful words or to be doing these things that I'm not proud of. And at the same time, this other side of me is like, I would die for this person. She's yeah. so good to me. And so it was just so confusing. That's when, again, I, that's when I really started doing the, the work, the therapy yeah. work and dipping my toe in, in, in the mental health world, but not actually diving in um, because it eventually got to January um, and into February where I was really just feeling like I wasn't supposed to be with this person anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, it convinced me to call off the wedding three days before I left for spring training in 2020. As you guys know, my roommate Nikki and I are huge fans of HelloFresh for their quick and easy recipes. But we just recently found out about HelloFresh's new sister brand, Green Chef. We're excited to use Green Chef to help us stick to our wellness resolutions this year. Green Chef offers nutritious recipes that make building health habits a breeze with unique farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and vegetables, and premium proteins. You all know that around here, we are all about creating a life that feels as good as it looks which makes me especially interested in their new gut and brain health meal plan. This includes delicious dinners, clean snacks, and functional drinks designed to support gut health and cognitive function. We can't wait for you to give Green Chef a try and see how it supports your wellness goals this year. So go to greenchef.com slash 60coachable and use code 60coachable to get 60% off, plus 20% off your next two months of Green Chef boxes. Go check them out today. And so that seasoning, I, I wore them as the three ingredients for a recipe disaster, even though they were really just kind of like an acute example of this lifetime of, of subconscious habits and projections. Yeah. Um, but the first one being that seizing an injury really threw me for a spin, calling off the engagement and seeing how much pain I can cause to someone I care about as much as I did. Um, it really just started making me question what I was doing with everything, even though it's not fair that that does not mean that everything else in my life I'm doing wrong. But for me, being such a perfectionist at that time and catastrophizing everything, it was like, I just, I, I see how my pain that I carry around is now starting to affect someone I care about. Um, that must mean everything I touch is painful. Everything I touch gets ruined or so, some kind of tainted. So um, yeah, it, was like a, the it was like a switch that went off where it was like all of a sudden it's like, why do I want to, why, why would I keep on doing this to other people? Why would I keep on doing this to myself? There's no way I can, I'm too dumb to fix this. I, I want to, in the note that I had left behind during my attempt, one of the sentences I wrote was I'm, I'm smart enough to realize why, but I'm too dumb to figure out how to fix it. Mm. Something along those lines. <laughs> um, and I just had, I was just slow, so low on confidence and so low on hope that, like I said, it was like a switch went off. I was like, maybe this just isn't worth it. And it was like a very passive thought. And then it was like, 
wow, actually like that would be so much easier. Mm-hmm. And then from that, that moment on for the next two months, it was on my mind 90 to 99% of the time mm-hmm. throughout a day where I was in the box hitting during a spring training game, trying to make a team where I would, I would step out in between pitches and get ready to get in for the next one. And I'll have a quick thought, like, it doesn't matter if you get a hit, you're going to go take your life tonight anyway. So it was on my mind in almost every situation, which is even more for me, it's, I feel a level of empathy and gratitude for the people around me at that time, because that was going on, but I was still trying to show this, my personality and my best version of myself in those moments. So nobody had any idea and people were still just kind of like, being really good teammates to me, really good mm-hmm. people and um, trying to help me through that breakup because they knew that was really tough on me. Um, so it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to think about how much was going on behind the scenes in my head, but still showing this my best side because I wish I would have just, all these people that were around me willing to help, I could have very easily just said, I need, I need yeah. real help. And my therapist, I was still seeing at the time, I need real help. Um, but it was always happening internally. Um, and then the third ingredient was the pandemic. Um, I was clinging on to distraction of baseball, even though, like I said, I was thinking about it during the games, it was still giving me some kind of structure of like working towards my purpose, making a comeback after the injury. Um, and then just having to focus on something else at mm-hmm. certain times throughout the day. And then once that was taken from me and we were all sent home, I'll never forget the day that I walked the first day of quarantine when I walked into my house up until that point, all I had known were, was my, my ex and the two dogs that we had. So mm-hmm. at that time she took both dogs. So I'll never forget the eerie feeling of hearing how silent it was when I opened the door instead of hearing my dog's footsteps running after me. Mm-hmm. And I actually said aloud to myself, I'm in trouble. And I knew that it was just a matter of time instead of, uh, just it, instead of if, so, um, I know that's a very, it's a, it's a very, a lot of context there, but it's something that, like I said, for some reason, it was just a switch that went off where all of a sudden I kind of thought about it. And then it was, it didn't leave my mind pretty much until it happened on April 16th. Wow. I had thought about it at different times throughout my life, very passively, where it was just a, kind of similar where I was like, man, like, what is the point of all this? Like, what is it, Like, what, why is this even worth it? Mm-hmm. But it was very intrusive in and out thought. Whereas this time it was actually, it sparked ideation and planning and unfortunately attempting. Wow. Um, it's such a powerful reminder of how, um, how much we don't ever really know what someone's going through, you know? And I think about, it almost makes me emotional. It does make me emotional because I think about all the people watching and listening to this who, are lying to the people in their lives or in lying to themselves because they feel like they have to, or they feel like they can't be honest. I think that's the most important part. They feel like they have to. Yeah. They feel like they have to. I remember for me, um, I was actually dating a guy that played major league baseball, uh, and he had gotten traded to the Padre. So I quit my job and we were living a beautiful life, you know? And, um, I was really depressed that year. And I didn't, the thing is these things can creep up on you and you, and they can happen subtly and you don't realize you're spiraling and you don't realize that your thoughts have a gravitational pull. Like they are bringing in other similar thoughts that are resonating the same frequency of, you know, whether they're 
why me and throwing a pity party or I, I don't have a purpose or I'm not enough or whatever. And how much those just like attract and then they grow. And it's like a cancer that just like gets out of control. And then all of a sudden it's like an avalanche and you don't know how to handle it. And, but also how much this can like happen so subtly. And you're like, how did I get here all of a sudden? Like, how did, how is this my life? How am I walking into a house and my dogs and the person I love aren't here? How did I get here? You know what I mean? And, and it makes me emotional because that's the reality of so many people. And every one of us knows somebody who's having a similar experience that we know nothing about and why it's so important that you share this because hopefully, and I believe, which is the purpose of this show is you sharing your story. The purpose is to, to give people hope and a reminder and a light in a really dark tunnel that looks like there's no light at the end of it, where it's like, I don't have another choice. And I've said this so many times on my podcast, but I lost my sister in 2011 and I lost my mom a couple years later, um, both of them to cancer. But I lost, uh, when Anna got diagnosed, um, my dad sat us down and he said, we have two choices, hope or despair. And we're going to choose hope. And that was the first time in my life, I realized I had a choice in how I was going to see and perceive our circumstance. And when I, th I think about that now, and I think about the people listening to this and, and listening to you, this is so important because it might be the first time they hear that there's hope. Like when they have, 1000% are in a, in a pit of despair and darkness. And it's like, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. Right. Yeah. And that's just the reality. And I think it's important to speak plainly like that to people because th the beauty is we have a choice. <laughs> you know, the thing that I cling to in, in moments where I've gone really, really dark places is like, where can I find the hope? Where, where, if any, <laughs> where, but I have to know that I can look for it, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I can't agree more. I think my whole goal is to just be a, just the last sign for someone to, to speak up. If anyone's relating, it's like, I did not have to do what I did to learn the lessons that I've learned. I could have yeah. very easily learned. Realistically, I'm just learning what I've, I've learned from all that happened before the attempt. The attempt is just what made me do it mm -hmm. where it's like, if I had some kind of nudge to do it beforehand or someone tell me to get real, or um, even someone would challenge me. If someone mm -hmm. have somehow gotten in my head and known that I was holding back my therapist and challenged me, give him more, get even more transparent, yeah. be more honest. I just think it's something that's like, I didn't need to do what I did to learn the lessons I did. I'm just learning from all my, all the experience that happened before that anyway. So it's mm -hmm. like, just, it's not always easy, no. but oh my gosh, like I would much rather be learning these lessons with two eyes instead of one. I'd much rather still be able to smell and taste things, um, not have even more regrets because while I work really hard to be 
grateful for everything that happens or, or just be thankful because I, I do believe that everything has some kind of meaning. And this, this experience has brought some really powerful things, but it's something that I, I, I would know that I'm going to have a very high level of regret for because I didn't need to do it. And I just want to take advantage of the opportunity, just like I try to do in every other, op- any other option opportunity to just try and make the best of it, which for me, it feels like by helping others. And that's mm. what I, th- I think of the quote often when I think about it this way of heal loudly to prevent others from dying silently. And it's just something that just hits so hard for me because if I, again, on paper, my life that I was living, if I could be feeling the way I was feeling, then I know that there's so many more out there. And after getting into this work and, and being open and in a public way um, and getting in front of some people, I've been reminded that there's, there's so many more people like me and yeah. so many different kinds of fashions and so in so many different kinds of environments, all the, the context is different. All the stimulus is different, but the internal feelings are very similar. And it's like someone I never thought that I would be relating with. I, relate to on such a deep level because yeah. we're all a lot more alike than we realize. And it's something that if I can just share about my experiences in a, not a praise me way, because I've looked how far I've come or look at how I've taken advantage of this and become a little bit stronger with my mental health and whatnot. It's, it's really just trying to be a signal for others to, to go get the help and work at it in a preventative way yeah, in an empowering way, instead of a emergency overwhelming response way, which right. is what I did. I, I, the lessons are going to be learned regardless. So yeah. make it a little bit easier by being more in control of it and taking the, taking the step to do it without having to learn the way that I did. Because like I said, I've learned throughout this, that going and admitting all my flaws and, and then addressing and trying to learn from them instead of regret them is something that has take way more strength than any kind of physical attribute or any kind of physical achievement mm-hmm. I've ever experienced. So for anyone that feels like it's a sign of weakness from someone who's in it, promise you it's not the strong it's not the it's not a weakness and it's probably the strongest thing I'll ever do because all the confidence I was low on um, beforehand has been heightened because I've been able to admit that I, I felt weak and now I have this sense of freedom of being confident because of those things so yeah a long way of saying I just hope that me sharing my story in a way that I feel is authentic and raw and hopefully encouraging is just so that somebody might feel a prompt to go start the work before getting to a place that mm-hmm. I got because um, I know of all people that's the worst place to be. And it's yeah. something that I've now learned is temporary. Um, but I didn't know that in the beginning. So, mm-hmm. um, cause I've gone to that place now a couple of times afterwards and it's something that, um, the education and, and the work has helped me realize that even though in the, the realness of the depths, I have a, a understanding of faith that it is temporary and yeah. it's, while it's still uncomfortable as hell, I will be able to get through it at some point. I don't know exactly when, but I'll try to get there. Yeah. I had to, um, I had to get that permanently. Uh, I had to have that be a permanent reminder to the point that I had to like literally get a tattoo. Um, it says this too shall pass. Yes. Um, (laughs) because I need it. I like you, I, you know, you can get so zoomed in on your experience and the thing that's causing you pain it consumes you and you, you lose sight and lose touch with the bigger reality that you are loved and that you're, you know, loved by so many people and you're so skilled and you're so talented and you have such a bright future ahead of you. And this is like a small moment in a big timeline of your life. And, but we get so fixated on that and that becomes our entire like reality. Um, 
that I, I, I have mean, to I, remind myself. I'm like, this is not, this is temporary. Yeah. I just, it always makes sense to me when I think of it that way. Cause I find myself talking, reminding people of this concept that anyone's willing to listen to me yeah. and talk with me about these things. It makes sense though, because realistically every moment of our life is the culmination of everything that's happened. So at this moment right now, if it's really stressful and painful, it does feel like my entire life has right. led to this point. So this is of course how I should be feeling, but you're right. It's just, it's fixating on one mm-hmm. present moment that is temporary. It's not a, it's not a, a dictator of our entire life, our entire right. being. So, um, but I like that quote because I feel like it's fitting even when things aren't as dark too, because totally. for me, it's, everything is temporary, good or bad is what I write in my journal all the time is it helps me feel a little bit of faith and a little bit of hope, even in the darkest times, because I know it's temporary, but even when things are going great, I, I, say, I say to myself, yeah. everything is temporary. So it make, helps me soak it in even more. So I feel mm-hmm. like it's fitting in any, any scenario and it's not, it doesn't feel cliche. It's something that feels real. And it's something that, um, the latest su- passive suicidal ideation phase that I was in, I was thinking that, in the midst of all the, mm. the dark times. So it's, I took it as a sign of the work that it is something that can give me hope. So totally long way of saying, I agree with, yeah. <laughs> with, with this quote yeah. and then with, with that saying that you have tattooed, I think it's a beautiful reminder. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you, everything you just heard about really helping people to understand that it's your vulnerability, your honesty, your transparency is your strength which is so different than what we're taught, um, which is to put on mask and to put on a front and to pretend. And I know in my life, I would much rather follow someone who's learning and figuring it out and willing to be honest about that process than someone who pretends to have it all together. And that was me. I also very much was very good at that. And uh, I mean, I still do it. Like I said, I I mean, I try not to do it as often and I'm doing the work to make it not be as consistent, but the reality is it's something that I got good at doing for Mm -hmm. 27 years. So I wasn't going to be able to just get rid of it over one year. So um, I'm a big quote guy, if you can't tell, but another (laughs) one that Robin Williams shared that is always so fitting is that people don't fake being depressed. They don't do it for attention. They don't fake being depressed. They fake being okay. Be kind. So true. Be respectful. You never know what someone's going through. So true. Whenever I see that quote, it comes up pretty often on my Instagram feed that it's just so fitting. Mm-hmm. It's like, of course, there's times where people might be projecting things to, to get things like when I was younger, trying to get praise and stuff like that. But people are not faking mm. hating themselves mm-hmm. and going home and considering ending their life. Like they fake going out in the public, being okay and saying, yeah, it was a great weekend. I'm looking forward to this week. Yeah. Um, so I think that quote came up from, from that for, for whatever reason. Yeah. I love that quote. And it's so true. And it's also not to say that it's like always also bad. I think that's the other mm-hmm. thing too, is like, I don't feel like you need to go be vulnerable every second of every day. Totally. I think I like understanding that it's just another tool that I have in my mm-hmm. toolkit is just like, I can still go out and be this masculine old school masculine guy that I, that I try to be sometimes or try to be too much at times when I was younger. Um, but I also like being able to kind of like turn that off and be very like empathetic towards mm-hmm. my boys who might be needing some, some love because they're guys and they don't get it that often. I like being able to have this tool and I'm not just walking around telling everybody all the time. I attempted suicide. I'm so depressed. Feel sorry for me. It's just this thing that I, that I'm able to just kind of like 
try to use in mm-hmm. a way because nobody likes a one trick pony. If I'm mm-hmm. just always out here being tough, 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 like that's great, but it's only going to take me so far because you have to adapt in life. So I like being able to have that vulnerability tool um, and be able to connect with people in ways that I never used to be able to do. Totally. I mean, you can, you have a spidey sense too, I imagine for like when people need a safe space, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I do want you to share with us about the day, April 16th, 2020. What, what made that day different than every other day that you'd considered it and take us through the events of that day and what happened, um, as you prepared and then as you actually went through with that attempt. Yeah, I guess to be honest, the only difference was that I felt done with my, my letter that I was kind of slowly working at throughout that quarantine time, which again, is just, it feels so uncomfortable to think about how much work I was putting into such a severe thing um, or such an extreme thing. But um, it just felt like time. I don't know exactly the reasoning. I, I had one final decision two days prior of what really kind of like cleared the, cleared the way of officially deciding because like I said earlier, I didn't have Ellie at the time and I was, I tried fostering a dog and it didn't go the way I planned. So I was, I didn't have that dog anymore. And I reached out to the breeder to try to go get another puppy and try to fill Ellie's void. Um, and I got first pick of the litter. I went out there, I gave the deposit, everything. I had the dog bed, the toys, and I was ready to bring a dog home with me that day, which was on the 13th or 14th, I think. And I was having an amazing time playing with this litter and trying to pick my, my new dog. Um, and I remember the breeder saying like, okay, have you made your decision? Like, I think she sensed I was like staying there too long. Cause really what was happening internally was like me contemplating, like, do I commit to getting this dog because of what potentially might happen? And that'd be one more soul on my, mm-hmm. on my tab. And I just couldn't live with that anymore. So something just snapped and I was like, I'm so sorry. I haven't changed my mind. I need to leave. And she was like, what are you, what are you talking about? I was like, I, I just, something's telling me I need to not bring this dog home with me. And really it was, I realized I had officially decided I was going to try. So um, the next day or two, I was just aware of what I decided with that, not getting that dog. And um, it was just something that I felt okay with, with the letter. I, I knew that no matter how I worded it or how I, put things together. I wasn't going to justify what I was doing, but I just wanted to try to leave as much unanswered questions for the people that cared about me. Cause I knew I was doing something that was going to hurt a lot of people and it wasn't any, any pointing fingers to anybody. It was really just aware that it was my relationship with myself that was mm-hmm. causing me to do this. So I just woke up like I did all the other days and, um, was going throughout my house and during quarantine and just trying to like get the day over with and try to figure out what's going to happen. Um, but like I said, around two or three o'clock that day, I just was like, I'm, I've, for some reason, I feel like today's the day. So I set up the house, got it as organized as possible for my family who's going to have to be moving it all out and stuff like that and take care of that process afterwards. Um, I was just trying to, I just did a lot of setup work to try to make things knowing it was going to make it easier, but it's trying to make it as easy as possible because I knew it was going to be a very traumatic experience. Um, and then, yeah, the next couple of hours, I just contemplating on the time or the, the, the place I was going to do it. So 
I had originally planned to do it outside of my house somewhere, but um, I was uncomfortable doing it that way. So um, not to say I was ever comfortable in any part of this, but um, eventually made myself made my way back to my house and did it around eight o'clock on April 16th on my couch. Um, just all in one motion. There was no like cinematic buildup of, Oh my gosh, it's happening. This is so great. It was just actually the opposite, like a numbing, like just, all right, it's happening. And, all in one motion, split second thing. I did it, and all of a sudden, it was nothing changed. I was looking at the thing I was looking at before, um, not in pain. So I thought I had a blank round. I thought I missed somehow. Um, and then the next 20 hours was just the most confusing waiting game um, I'd ever imagined. Wow. I, yeah, it's. Uh... Obviously, I'm doing my best to envision that and imagine what a moment like that is like. Um, this, like, monumental build-up to something that you've been contemplating and thinking about to then, a couple seconds later, realize it's I'm still here. Were you, I imagine you're, like you just said, very confused. What happened in those 20 hours? <laughs> yeah. Again, like on paper, nothing about this, the actual story makes any sense. Um, like I said, I pulled 20 hours before someone found you. So 20, 20 hours, hours before, before I called 911 and okay. finally chose life is where wow. I get to with this. Um, 20 hours of two showers to try to clean up mouthwashing at one point uh, a couple hours like a night's of night of sleep um taking tylenol to try to help with pain trying to hydrate because i had lost a lot of blood mm -hmm. um moving from parts in my house to eat more easily clean clean spaces for at that point i thought for some reason i thought my family was going to be cleaning this if whenever the eventual end came um, but I tried to, to move in different areas, but just the overwhelming feeling was just confusion. Mm -hmm. um, I just, all I was expecting was what I had seen in movies. Um, you do it, it's done. So the, the first four hours, not even feeling pain because I was just in shock. Um, and then waking up the next morning, um, feeling the physical pain. Um, but even before that, like I said, I moved from my couch to hard surface to, that was going to be more easily cleaned. Wow. Um, cleaning up in the shower to try to make it less, less of a mess, I guess. And then like I said, I eventually got around midnight. Like I said, I did, I did it at around eight o'clock. Um, it came at midnight. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what is happening? Like, how am I still here? I mean, it's midnight. Might as well just go lay in bed. Like this is a bedtime, <laughs> I guess. So um, I got ready and I, before I got into bed, I just was like, okay, like obviously it's going to happen throughout this. So I don't, I don't really feel like waiting up anymore. So I'm just going to lay down and if I'm able to fall asleep, then that'll be it. Mm -hmm. And then seven hours later, I woke up and saw the sun coming through the, the shades and I was just so confused. And that's like, so that's where the next day is when the pain finally kicked in. And it was just the level of pain that I can't even describe, mm -hmm. um, hearing and feeling parts of my face shift around and the amount of swelling. Um, and then there was a moment where around 945, 
I wasn't aware of all the time of this. This is kind of like doing, going back and seeing mm-hmm. it. But around 945, I heard my phone go off in the other room, which I left it where I did the night before. It just, I remember hearing the sound. It didn't like actually catch my attention. Like I need to go check my phone. It just was, I remember hearing that. And then a little bit later, I, I heard a lot of a loud banging outside of my house. And I remember just like, oh, it's probably, then it was like consistent. I was like, that sounds like it's literally like right in front of my house, like on my driveway or something, whatever. Again, bigger things at stake here. Like I, I got something, I got more on my plate. Um, and then like I said, moving throughout my house, just like confused at this time, I was in so much pain. I was contemplating trying again for just the physical, as, physical pain aspect. Um, and then I made my way in, in my mirror or into my um, bathroom at one point and was looking at myself in the mirror and assessing the damage. And remember that's when I really recognized a futuristic thought of, I, I thought to myself after looking, like looking at my face that I wasn't going to be able to play baseball again. And I remember catching myself and having a quick conversation of play baseball. Like you, you what do you mean? Like we're trying to, you know, like what's going on here? Are you trying to survive this now? And that's when I kind of caught myself like, okay, are we trying to, now are we thinking towards the future? What are we doing here? So I went, actually grabbed my phone, went in, back into my, I was actually in my bed at this time in the afternoon and I looked at my phone and at 9.45, it was a text from my dad that said, hey, is it okay to come by and use your garage gym for a little bit? So that banging that I was hearing was my dad working out 30 feet away from me, completely unaware of what was going down because he's just a very respectful, respectable person and he wouldn't come in without permission, even though it's my dad and I mm-hmm. love him to death, but... Um, it's, it was just a crazy part of the story and it's something that's heavy for him to think about obviously, but, um, yeah, he was right, right there. Um, and then eventually got to about three thirty PM. And like I said, it's just the level of pain was just unbearable and I clearly was not passing. So I was deciding if I want, if I wanted to act on that future thought or act on just trying to put myself out of my misery again. And so I made my way back to the same spot and I, around 3.45 after looking at one option of calling for help in my right hand and one option of trying again in my other. Um, thank God I chose to call 911 and called for help myself because clearly something was keeping me alive. So it's something that um, I reflect on and journal on often because it's a moment where I got to fit, I got to literally choose life. But it's another message I like to share with this is that the way you choose life is something that you have choices of a million times throughout the day. So um, I, I got a very in extreme version of that, but mm-hmm. it's something that I could have been choosing on a much smaller scale and not having to choose that, that extreme of a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually was completely coherent that entire time. I never lost consciousness other than the, the sleep. And then um, remember everything. I Even before I pressed call on 911, I turned my phone around and took a, a selfie myself because I wanted to, memorialize the moment I chose wow. life. Like it's just the amount of co awareness and coherency that I had in a moment of the severity with that is just almost uncomfortable to think about, but it's another just part of the story. That's a little bit, uh, unexplainable. It's, um, so powerful and so human. Yeah, the the choice, you know, that we all have. And obviously the fact that you're, that you survived this and is a miracle in itself. But in my, um, 
in my spiritual journey and in my contemplation of the purpose and meaning of life. Um, one of the things I've learned is that a miracle is a shift in perception. And that's exactly what you had, right? Is this, um, again, this physical example of having these, this choice and that, that is what it means to be human in my experience. It's like that we get to decide, you know, what we're going to write about in our book of life or how our story goes. There are things obviously that are beyond our control that we didn't choose. We didn't choose what family we would grow up in or what side of town or how much money we would, you know, what religion, what ethnicity, but we do get to choose what we do about it, you know? And I'm just, I hear that and I'm so moved and inspired and, I feel every, all the spectrum of emotions because it's just so human and real. And that's what it means to be human. It's like that if you're feeling anything, it means you're here. Yeah. You know? I know. It's, it's heavy. Like I said, I, I, a lot of this, a lot of these stories or this, these phases that I'm reflecting on are in the moment. I'm not even close to having clarity of why I'm experiencing it the way I'm right. experiencing it. But um, like I said, I, I'm not the most traditionally spiritual person, but it's something that I was forced to completely feel like, my gosh, I can't, I'm not in control. Clearly, if I was in control, I would not be here mm -hmm. right now. And 10 hours later, I was, all I wanted to do was still be here. So it's something that was clearly out of my control mm -hmm. that I don't need to try to be gripping onto myself. It's mm -hmm. something that I can just experience. And it's not happiness, all these emotions that we're striving for, not something that we obtain and we get to just hold on to. It's just something that we experience. So, um, I finally got to experience that freedom of not having to hide anything. I, how could I, like, I just, if I did, I just scare the hell out of everybody around me. I have nothing to lose anymore. Like I'm weak right now. People didn't know I'm, then, uh, now they know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm scared. I, mm. I feel helpless. Um, I need your help. I need your love. Chad, my big burly brother, I love you. Like, mm -hmm. thank you for showing me the way. Um, I finally got to experience that Lego feeling that I have been needing and dying for my whole life. Mm -hmm. And it's something that um, for me feels very spiritual. It's like I, I was clearly not in control of that because on paper, even if you take one or two pieces of that year span of pulling the trigger to afterwards, if you take one or two parts of that, it doesn't make sense on paper, but yeah. I experienced like 20 of them. And it's like, how in the world can I question anything anymore? But again, that's where the work is because you can definitely revert back to the of old course. habits. Of course. But it's something that, um, just uh, a never ending reminding game of not eyes in control as you like. And that's not always such a bad thing because if I was in control, I wouldn't be here right now. I know. I um, have a saying for that it was kind of birthed out of my own kind of dark times of feeling like I was going through a lot of shit. And, um, I found myself one day just saying like, holy shit, like can't believe I'm going through this or holy shit, like this again or holy shit, whatever. And then I realized I caught myself saying that. I was like, do I even realize what I'm saying? <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> And I was like, wait, I've seen it. this is something we just say all the time. And then I was like, 
who put these two words together, first of all? And second of all, like, is there something holy or divine or spiritual or more like beautiful than I'm seeing in the midst of this shit show or this horrible experience or tragedy? And, and what I have kind of found is like, we're always going to find evidence for the story that we believe to be true, you know, and we get to decide what story we want to tell. And if it's that you find meaning out of this and that you have a purpose and you like, you can find that if you go looking for it, you, I mean, you have a million pieces of evidence to tell you that you're, you're meant to be here. You know, I like to, just recently kind of put words together that I feel like I've been sharing a lot is it's just all of this is just feedback, not reasoning. Mm. It's not a reason why my story is true. It's not a reason why my insecurity is true or my strength is true. It's just feedback. Like I I'm good at this. Great. That's how can I use this as just feedback and not mm. evidence of why my life is great or why my life sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's no matter where we always, I always spend I would say we, as if I'm like doing the research or know all of us, but through conversation, obviously I know in my own circle, but it's really just a personal experience of, I usually fixate on all the reasons of why on all the bad things. Mm -hmm. So using that evidence to prove why I'm not intelligent or why Mm -hmm. I'm not confident, I can find them very easily because I was, became a veteran at doing that for 27 years. So um, always spending time on, going to do hypotheticals might as well spend some time on the positive ones or how things can go exactly how you want. So right. sounds cliche, but it's like, what are the other options? Just continuing to totally. hate myself and live in, in misery. Sometimes. Yeah. I choose that yeah. unfortunately, yeah. but trying to balance that a little bit more often. Yeah. I'm curious for you, cause this has been something I've struggled with or I've thought a lot about. It's something Nikki and I've talked about. Since your attempt and since, you know, committing your life to this work and advocacy and your own mental health and all of those things, um, what has it been like for you to open up to joy and play and pleasure and, and the goodness of life? Because there was part of me that was scared of that, that was scared to like feel good because what if it was taken away from me? Yeah. That's yeah. It's this concept that I find myself trying to piece together with my own understanding at times of like vulnerability is also being vulnerable in like the best way possible, Mm -hmm. like for the good times, Mm -hmm. because I've recognized so many times in my patterns that sometimes I clearly have the awareness or the knowledge, but I don't have the action attached to it. Mm. Cause it's like, I am, my comfort zone is also including of all of my misery or all mm. of my struggles. So it's like, there's moments in, in the midst of the struggles where it's like, I have the knowledge to, to redirect or have the ability to choose or have the ability to kind of whatever. I have the knowledge to make it not as bad. And I completely say F that. Mm-hmm to my awareness and to my learning 
or my lessons I've learned say, if you guys, I'm going to stay down this path and choose like this familiarity. We're addicted to our suffering and the yeah. comfort of the pain. Yeah. Almost. So I, it's something that I feel like I've even started to talk about a little bit more as I'm trying to figure out my own understanding or my perspective or my own inter- interpretation of it. But I think it's just the idea that my comfort zone is not always comfortable, mm-hmm. but it's something that's familiar. So yes. I think familiarity and comfort zone are just like these two things that go hand in hand because yeah. It's, I would rather know the outcome of misery than do something that I don't know and feel potentially miserable and not know what I'm doing as I'm doing it. So I know all the tricks and all the ways to, to get through my misery Mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. But, um, if I do something new that it could fail and I can still feel miserable, Mm -hmm. then I'll just stick to my, my comfort zone. So it's this weird psychological battle of like, man my comfort zone isn't always that comfortable mm. and I continue to choose this. So I just think the idea of familiarity over, over comfort is, is really more the, over the phrase rather than the actual comfort zone. Yeah. Cause I think about um, like a baby who is abused by its mother and maybe a police officer, somebody tries to take the baby and take it into custody or take it into, you know, into a safer environment, but the baby clings onto its mother even though she's the abuser, it's like, that's what's familiar. And I I've found in my life, there have been so many moments where I would cling on to my story of suffering or pain or whatever, because that felt like home. And part of my healing has been actually allowing myself to open my heart again and to allow myself to open to the possibility of how good can it get? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of a song called happy by NF. He's uh-huh. my, it's this artist that I, I always tell people that I feel like it's, it's as if this guy got footage of my, my, my inner world mm. or dialogue of my self-talk and put it into lyrics for me. Um, but this song called happy is basically saying like, I think the chorus is that I just don't know who I'd be if I was happy. Mm. And it's basically something how scary he is to let go of his mm-hmm. his constraints at times. And it's mm-hmm. something that, again, all of his songs mm-hmm. hit me hard. But um, sometimes, yeah, I recognize that's like sometimes I'm really just kind of controlling what I can, what I know will give me some success, but not being vulnerable mm-hmm. and trying even more or not mm-hmm. being willing to, mm-hmm. to, to experience even more of that joy or even more of that happiness because I might fail. Yeah. And it's all this inter- weird internal yeah, interpretation crazy. of it because it's like, it's not really failure. Mm-hmm. I just watched a video last week of Kobe Bryant and describing how failure is a figment of our imagination. Yeah. It's like, so true. So yeah, anyways, just, it's, a, it's been a cool experiment. Yeah. It's been a cool experiment for me over the last like two years to really let myself play with um, letting go of my need to, to suffer and be in pain as a way to almost prop up my ego. Like, look how much I can handle and go through and what I've been through and versus like actually allowing myself to like enjoy my life and be, and be happy. And like you said, who would I be if, if that, if I let myself do that or let myself feel that way or even open my heart to receive that kind of love or receive that kind of whatever it is. And I had to let, it's literally been an experiment. And then it's brought up all these other fears about like, what if this, what if I lose this, you know? And I, so I've gotten to work on that at a deeper level. Um, but it had, I had to on some level give up this need to be um, like, 
almost that I was like so righteous and how, in like how much I've been through and how much I suffered. I'm like, actually, what is this doing for me? <laughs> that I like, I'd actually am preventing myself from having the thing that I want so bad, which is like to feel really good and to have a life that feels as good on the inside as it looks on the outside, which is now how I define success in my life. It used to be an external thing. Right. Yeah, sorry. Just another NF song. Yeah. Lyrics are describe that in a, yeah. a musical way, but yeah. Um, sorry. No, I'm just curious now, like for you coming full circle in this conversation and just to where you are now, obviously you've put in so much work and the work continues and will forever continue for all of us. And we go through highs and lows and ebbs and flows with all of it. Um, but what is, um, winning or success mean to you now? Like if you, you know, in terms of not just like your outward success, but like, what does it mean to you to have a successful life now going forward? What is that like? <laughs> what I think I want to think of it. I think I just, the way that I would describe it or, in, or interpret it, it has changed where I I fully understand that it is just a, an experience instead of something I obtain. I think mm -hmm. for most of my life, I was just thinking I was going to actually physically or like permanently obtain success mm -hmm. or obtain happiness or joy. So I think that understanding has kind of like freed up some, some energy, some more positive energy of understanding that it's something I just experienced. Um, but I think something that I'm striving for to feel even more of a win is truly accepting more, mm. like accepting myself more. It's something that I'm still very far away from where I want to be. And I feel like that is something that I would consider more of a win than if I obtain a million dollars these days. Yeah. It's something that if I ever truly fully accepted myself and all my flaws in a way that I am working to, I would consider that more of a win than anything because my regrets and my shadow trips me up sure. way too much these days still. And it's something that even though I've dedicated and I'm doing the work, um, I still have moments where I'm internally yelling at myself for being such an idiot mm. and it's exhausting. Mm. So um, those regrets, I feel like accepting the reality of them as lessons instead of actual just stopping it yeah. simply re regrets. I think that would be considered more of a win for me than anything else these days. Totally. I think a lot, I certainly can relate. I know everybody listening can probably relate to that. It was like, I think you're doing pretty well if you can look at yourself in the mirror and like what you see, you know, like who you see and how you live and how you treat people and how you treat yourself. And um, if we could all aspire to, to that, to get to a point where, instead of hating ourselves and running from ourselves and avoiding and numbing ourselves, we actually embrace it, embrace all the parts of us, including the ones that we've exiled and judged and said are wrong and broken. Um, Unconditional. Yeah. I think that's something that it, even I find myself thinking as lessons from Ellie. Mm. Like Isn't I legitimately it? use it as if she's my teacher sometimes. Totally. Like unconditional. She doesn't um, care what you did that day. Because I still, I'm still way more often you trying to use reasonings or evidence of why I love myself mm -hmm. because I had a really good day of self-care mm -hmm. because I treated that person mm -hmm. really well, 
because I did this X, Y, Z. Yeah. That's great. Those are things, but you can only do so much of those to be honest. Like yeah. the more I learned, the more op- options there are to have a checklist or there's more options to check off the list. So it's like just having action and sometimes action is just sitting accepting because that might fuel the next step of mm-hmm. actually taking more actionable steps. So um, unconditional love is something that is clearly possible. I know it's a dog, but no, I, I mean, I, I, I watch it every day. There's totally. times where I raise my voice at her for unreason, un, unvalid reasons. And she still comes running to me I five know. seconds later, even though I'm sitting there like literally as if I'm the pet at her feet saying, I'm so sorry. Yeah. But she, I legitimately see those moments at times as like, gosh, a freaking dog is mm-hmm. teaching me something like unconditional love and trying to get there for myself is yeah. something that, um, I'm hopeful will actually be happening more, a little bit more often. Cause I know even if I get there, there'll be temporariness to it. Yeah. It's a process, <laughs> you know? And I think that's the importance of having people in your life that can remind you when you forget, you know, people like our people like in our community because we will all forget. We'll get a glimpse of it for a minute and it'll be really beautiful. And then we'll forget. And it's having, what we call it a huddle, like the who's in your huddle. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, you know, who's there to remind you why, why you're here and why, yeah. when you forget. Cause the amount of times will. that I've written in my journal, I'm being reminded again, mm-hmm. or it's just another reminder. Mm-hmm. I bet you I've written those two sentences mm-hmm. over 200 times in the last three years. Totally. I'm right there with you. Um, you're doing amazing work. Obviously you work now with San Francisco Giants as their mental health advocate, a position that didn't exist before you. Um, ultimately, like, what are you really excited about working on right now, whether it's within that organization and the work that you're doing with the team or in your other advocacy and other work? Um, like, what do you hope more than anything that people take away from this conversation? And what are you really excited about creating this year? Yeah, I think in, simplest way something to take from this conversation is is really just people would rather hear from you than about you it's something that i remember when i saw that quote the first time after my attempt i broke down all by myself and i just had a full-on cry session because i a big i genuinely believe if i would have came across that quote beforehand i would have thought i think i thought about things differently i'm trying not to be a shoulda coulda woulda guy Mm. but i think that quote just always seems to hit me even though i've said it over probably a million times the last couple of years, but I just hope if anyone is relating a little bit too much to me that they sense that there is options and there is help and being honest actually is the strongest thing that you'll be doing instead of actually feeling weak. So yeah. just anyone around you, I would, I would rather hear from you than about you. Yeah. People would rather hear from you than about you, no matter how irrational it feels dramatic catastrophized it doesn't matter i'd rather hear about your worst days than attend your funeral so um i think that's hopefully what someone can take from from this conversation um the other thing is just realizing again like how strong it is to do that stuff i think it's again i found all my strength and my weaknesses Mm -hmm. it's it's so paradoxical if that's a word Mm but um it's Mm -hmm. true so speak up people rather hear from you than about you and understand that you'll find your strengths and weaknesses. And the other part of that with uh, something I'm looking forward to is just kind of uh, getting out of the playing days. The first couple of years of this transition, I've recognized I've been pretty hesitant with actually 
teaching in a way, mm. or just kind of like, I'm, I'm very passionate about relating to people and trying to help and, and whatnot. But I think I was always very insecure of actually guiding people because I was so insecure myself. Mm-hmm. I remember very often throughout my playing days, I was like, man, I would be such a good coach if I could actually figure this out <laughs> because I've experienced every nook and cranny of baseball besides superstardom. Mm. But I would always butt myself and say, but I don't even know what the hell I'm doing half the time. So I'm never going to go mess up some other kid and teach them how to do something the way I did it. Cause I couldn't do it. Whereas now I'm finally letting go of that story and realizing it's like, dang, I did learn a lot of shit throughout mm-hmm. the last 12 seasons and I can kind of apply that in a teaching way. So something, it's a very open-ended thing I'm looking forward to, but um, I'm just finding a little bit more comfort and desire or understanding that I'd have a lot to give and actually teaching is something that I'm having a lot of fun doing mm. in the baseball world. And I'm also aware that there's probably some opportunity to do it in other avenues of, other than just baseball. So For sure. I think something that's not actually some kind of physical plan, but it's something that I'm finding is that I'm really looking forward to is continuing to teach and mm. hopefully have people see my lessons learned or my mistake, whatever way they want to look at it. Um, yeah. Guide them to a little bit more control of a place instead of having to go through what I went through. Beautiful. Your story is, um, it's really inspiring, obviously, you know that. And I'm just really grateful that you would share it with us and our audience. And I, uh, I'm so confident that this is going to land in the ears of the people that need to hear it. Um, and that you have unique medicine for the world and yeah. that you, you need to share it. And I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank so you. you guys, um, if you're inspired, if you need help, if you need support, um, my invitation is to find the courage within yourself and in your heart to find anybody in your life and let them know what's going on. Because just like Drew said, we would rather hear from you than about you. Um, and even if that means you email our team, and you let us know, um, we are a safe space for you to do that. So you can always reach out to me in my DMs or to our team at support at ToriGordon.com. Um, just as a reminder for those who don't know, we have a weekly call called The Huddle. It happens every Monday night, which is a support call for anybody looking for support around the game of life and all of the things that we are here to learn in this lifetime. We're not meant to do it alone. That's the one thing I've learned. We're not meant to just be uh, a one solo player. We're supposed to do all of this together. So if that is interesting to you, you can learn more about that. The link in our bio and on ToriGordon.com and uh, make sure to follow Drew and what he's doing and stick around for more of his content and the, the work that he's sharing on his social platforms. Where can people find you online? Yeah, just typical Instagram and, and Twitter. Okay. Um, Drew Rob with three B's. There you go. <laughs> I'm not the most active, but I'm trying. All right. Um, <laughs> something that, and then also follow Ellie too. There Ellie's, you go, we Ellie. Ellie on Instagram, everywhere with Ellie. Everywhere with out. Ellie. <laughs> and uh, we'll put all of that in the show notes to make it super easy for you guys to find and connect. And we'd love to hear your stories and how this has impacted you. Make sure if this did inspire you to share it with a friend, you never know who you could be a hero to simply by sharing a conversation like this. And last but not least, please hit the subscribe and leave us a review. That means the world to me and is the number one way you can say thank you and give back to this show um, on whatever platform that you stream it. 
So until next week, you guys go be coachable, implement something you learned today. We'll see you next week on the Coachable Podcast. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.